Well, how many know that we are living in a time where there is a war that's being raged right now? In fact, I, I would say it like this. The culture that we live in is at war with the culture of the kingdom of God. And this culture, in many ways, how we align ourselves, which culture we align ourselves to, will determine whether our lives are marked by blessing or by curses. And so it's really, really important that we understand the landscape and the environment that we're in and how to respond to it. So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about uh, the war. We started out with the war on God. There's a war waging against the existence of God. Does God even exist? It's a question that's regularly asked, especially to our young people. The war on truth. What is truth? How can you know what's true? That's being waged. So we talked about how to respond to that. The war against the family. God created the family with an intentional design. I'm sure you heard a great message last week about that. I did from D up at Harker Heights. But God has a design for family. And the enemy in our culture is waging a war against that and saying you can just make family however you want. It doesn't matter about some God or some creator. You do you, boo. So we said no. There's a word of God. There's a designer and a design. And today we're going to continue on in this series and we're going to look at the war on education. And the reason we're dealing with education this week, government next week, and by the way, we're adding one more week to this series and we're going to talk about the war on the church because that's happening as well. And these institutions of church, of education, of government, they were established by God for the benefit of people to reflect his glory and to, and to steward the earth well. Which, of course, explains why the enemy would want to come against those and try to exploit the institutions created by God to use them for his benefit. And so the question, of course, keeps coming up, well, what, what do we do and why are we supposed to do anything at all? I mean, don't we just want to get people to heaven? Like, isn't that the goal? Just get people saved and go to heaven and whatever else happens, happens. And I want to point something out to you that I don't know if you've seen before, but I find a little curious about the Lord's Prayer. How many heard the Lord's Prayer? We did it just two weeks ago with communion. We all said it together. But the Lord's Prayer, notice it doesn't say, Our Father who art in heaven, please get everybody back to heaven. Amen. That's not what Jesus actually prayed. Do you know that? But sometimes we live that way. We live like the only thing that matters is just, just, just get saved and then say your little prayer and then go, go live like you want to and do what you want to. Jesus actually said, Matthew 6.10, I'll put this part on the screen for you. He said this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Everybody say earth. As it is in heaven. You see, Jesus had a desire to see heaven come to earth, not just to see earth go back to heaven. Although that is part of it. And there's new creation and there's all this glorious stuff. And I'm sure we'll do a series on eschatology, end times, and all that at some point. Today's not that day. Today what we're talking about is how the, the, the kingdom of heaven needs to come to the kingdom of the world. And the way that happens is through you and me and the followers of Jesus. But of course, everything, and here's the problem, everything that God designs and creates, there's an enemy who stands by ready to twist and remake in his image, according to his ways, according to his purpose, which is chaos, destruction. The Bible says the enemy's desire is to kill, steal, and destroy. So everything he comes that he twists is to that end. It's to that end. So with this in mind, our series is looking at some of, like I said, these key institutions and how the enemy is at work within them. And I want to be clear about something. I want to be clear about something, and I want to, I want to get into this delicately, and then we're going to go all the way in. If you're with me, say I'm with you. I'm just making sure. This right now, this series is not about us waging war on the world. 
It is about the fact that the world is at war with the kingdom of God and we as the people of God and those who are curious about the kingdom of God have to understand the landscape and how to respond. We are not at war with the world. We love the world. Jesus died for the world. He gave his life for the world. But he also said, when you judge, I know that doesn't compute with some of what you're being told about Jesus these days. Jesus said, when you judge, make righteous judgments. And so we have to look at the culture around us and try to identify where the attacks are coming from and make righteous judgments about what's happening and how we respond. And so today I want to talk to you about a war that's being waged, I think, by our enemy and by culture. Our enemy is the devil, by the way, not people, but our enemy and culture against the hearts and minds of our children. Specifically, we're going to talk about the war on education. Now, I want to say this real quickly, quickly too. When I say that we're going to talk about the war for the hearts and minds of our children, it'd probably be easy for some of you to check out. Maybe think, well, this was not for me. I don't have kids. Or my kids are all grown. God bless their ministry. They got their own thing. I'm going to do me. I want to suggest to you, just like we talk about on Mother's Day and Father's Day here in this church, we actually believe in spiritual family. And what that means is, is that we believe that every woman who's a part of this church has a spiritual calling to mother others in the church. And we believe that every man has a calling to be a father in the church. So this isn't just about the kids who may or may not live under your roof. Although it is about that. It's about much more than that. <clears throat> and while I'm getting all this preamble out of the way, <laughs> let me also say this message is not a, a message against teachers or against education. It's not about that at all. Um, again, we, we've looked in these message series each time at the war coming at us and how we can respond. And so that is what we are talking about today. So why does all this matter? I'm glad you asked. Let's take a quick look at Proverbs 23, 7. For as he, a man, thinks in his heart, so he is. Now, for the Bible nerds in the room, because I am one, I do realize this verse is interpreted several different ways in different translations. So what I'm going to say is this principle is true, and it's carried out all throughout Scripture, which is this, that the essence of who you are is best understood not just by what you do, but by what you believe. Now, maybe you're sitting in here and you're thinking, well, haven't you quoted your friend Ron Brown many times and said you do what you believe? That's true, but here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. People are deceptive. We just are. We deceive each other and we deceive ourselves. But what we really believe, like what we really think about stuff is who we are, and to Ron's point, over time, that will manifest itself. So today, we're going to talk about not just, not even just what we think or what we do, but how we come to think about things. So again, we're looking at the war the enemy is waging against our children through our educational system to shape our children's worldviews away from biblical worldviews and towards godless worldviews. And as we move a little deeper, let's establish this fact here. Our belief system is shaped... Our belief system is shaped over time by observations, associations, and teachings. And you could throw in there also what we experience, but as we talked about in week two, the war on truth, our experiences, ah, they're just a factor, but they're not the foundation. They're not the absolute truth. So while they're important, they're less important than that which is absolutely always foundationally true. So, in other words, it's education, what we're taught and what's demonstrated for us in a teaching setting 
that largely shapes what we believe. I'm a little dehydrated today. I just want to ask, Isaiah, could you find me a bottle of water? <clears throat> I would appreciate it so much. So, of course, the enemy's going to have, again, this war against education because it's so powerful. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. Nelson, Nelson Mandela said this, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. So here's a fact that we have to understand. Our education system in this country we live in, this is not a message for the whole world. This is a message for, really for us here in, in Texas, in the United States of America. Our education system, from where it started and how it began, has changed quite a bit and has become something very different than originally designed. The water just keeps coming like the blessing of the Lord. Thank you, my friend. So maybe you hear that. It's changed quite a bit. And you think, well, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. Our early education system here in the United States of America, which, by the way, was far from perfect, all kinds of problems. We'll talk about some of that at some point, I'm sure. But today we're talking about is that the education system was initially built with an understanding and a context of a biblical worldview that centered around the worship of and the word of God as the center of life. Reading, writing, arithmetic, all these things were always secondary in value compared to the instruction in the ways of God. And even with things like mathematics, they weren't taught exclusively as a science. We would say math is a way to understand how God thinks about numbers. It's about discovering what God thinks about things. And of course, understanding math is part of how we, as God's creation, learn to create as he did. So even in those studies, it's a part of discerning and discovering our purpose as God made it. So that's the framework. That was the ethos of the early education system. Then in order to prepare for life in this world, students needed to know how to relate to God and to orbit their lives around who he is. And again, I know no one did this perfectly, and we had all kinds of problems in the inception of our nation. But because this was an anchor, good things would come to pass. The first American public school was established in 1635 by a Puritan preacher named John Cotton. Maybe you've heard of him. And virtually all public schools at that time had ministers as headmasters, the schools were connected to the churches and actually came from the churches. So today, a lot of times when people talk about the separation of church and state, they misunderstand the fact that guys who were writing about the separation of church and state were some of the same ones who endorsed and in many cases led the public schools. And so this idea of separation of church and state was never designed to protect the state from the church. It was designed to protect the church from the state, and it was certainly, certainly never intended to replace the church with the state. If we take an honest look at early American education, we'll see that this is clear. I want to read a few things for you. National Education Association in 1892 said this, if the study of the Bible is to be excluded from all state schools, if the inculcation of the principles of Christianity is to have no place in the daily program, if the worship of God is to form no part of the general exercise of these public elementary schools, then the good of the state would be better served by restoring all schools to church control. How about that? Going on, Gouverneur Morris, one of the main writers of the Constitution, yesterday was Constitution Day, there you go, said this, religion is the only solid basis for good morals. Therefore, education should teach the precepts of religion and the duties of man towards God. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, said this, 
In contemplating the political institutions of the United States, I lament that we waste so much time. See if this sounds true today. I lament that we waste so much time and money in punishing crimes and take so little pains to prevent them. We profess that to be, Republic, to be Republicans, and yet we neglect the only means of establishing and perpetuating our own Republican form of government. He's talking about a form of government, not a party. That is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. Interesting how our founding fathers thought about education and Scripture. The great universities of our country, they were actually founded on the teachings of the Bible and with a biblical worldview. Let's look at this. Harvard, uh, the oldest learning institution in America, higher learning. It was founded in 1636. Its principal donor was actually a pastor, a pastor by the name of John Harvard. Its purpose was for training and releasing into society clergymen and scholars with Christian worldview and values. That's what it existed for. Harvard's rules and precepts in 1636, here's what it said. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The main end of his life and studies is this, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, in quote John 17, 3, and therefore lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. How about that? Who knew? <laughs> Some of you probably did. It's amazing to think about. Yale, by the way, was founded in 1701 by 10 pastors, and, and the leader of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, attended there. It was also an education center designed to inculcate students with a biblical worldview. Princeton, founded in 1746, again, by Presbyterians, was founded to train Presbyterian ministers. In fact, their motto was, at that time, it's changed since, their motto was, under God's power, she flourishes. How about that? Oh, to live in a world where all of our education systems put their foundational belief in and on the word of God. These colleges were founded to help students change the world. Many of them did. Many of them did bad things. Many of them did great things. We sit here today because of it. How far we've fallen. But the fall didn't just start in recent years. Of course, the fall started in the garden with Adam and Eve, and they had a choice to make between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And eating from the tree of life is living dependent on God, aligning with his views. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is living independent of God. And so we see this kind of play out today, and I would say we see this play out in this sense, that we have biblical worldview, and then we have secular or worldly, that's what that word means, worldview. Now, today, our public education system, which started out as teaching from a biblical worldview, now instructs primarily, and in many cases, in most cases, exclusively from and through a secular worldview. That's just the way it is. So our education system started out being shaped by Scripture, and now it's being shaped by another, a number of other factors. Let's look at a few of these here today. One of those factors is something called humanism. Humanism is an ethical philosophy that prioritizes universal human qualities and intellect. In other words, humanity is at the center of everything. Everything revolves around what you think, know, and can understand. Humanism submits to human value systems and interests over God's value systems and God's interests. Humanism rejects the validity of the dependency on faith and supernatural, divinely revealed truths. You don't need all of that. All you need is what you've got. 
And somebody a little smarter than you to teach you what you don't know. That's what humanism would say. Then there's atheism, the belief that there is no God, which is the most unscientific conclusion you could ever come to. I'll leave it at that so that I don't become redundant with one of my favorite sayings. Rationalism, reason is the supreme authority in matters of opinion, belief, or content. Reason alone is the source of knowledge. All you have to do is just understand how to reason and logic, and you can learn everything that there is to know. Right? That's how this works. And then there's, there's liberalism, which is kind of a cover for all these philosophies because liberalism, in that, one can believe in God without having to accept any of his standards because it's always morphing. A big problem with both theological liberalism and social liberalism, which are different and yet somehow still a bit connected, is that they always seem to in- introduce a new and improved version of God, a new way to see the scriptures, a new way to see Jesus, a new way to live, and somehow... Ironically, those new revelations always seem, always seem to adapt to the ever-changing moral landscape of society to fit the preferences of people who want to do what people want to do. That's what happens. That's just how it goes. If you pay attention, you'll see. So all this enlightenment and all of this sort of, oh, we're finding all these new ways of thinking about things, if you look closely, almost exclusively, our bright ideas are new pathways to just do whatever you want. And if you really want to just do whatever you want, and you want to be encouraged in that, it's going to sound harsh, buckle your seatbelt, there's a different Bible for you. In fact, the motto, the key statement of the satanic Bible is do as thou wilt. Do what you want. So if that's really what you want, Stop reading the word of God from Yahweh and go pick up the other Bible (laughs) out there. That's what it's going to tell you. Do whatever you want. So how does all this translate into how we're training the next generation? Again, I, I, I talk about spiritual things, not political things, although spiritual things have political consequence. So if it feels a little political, sorry, but this is just the way it is today. And here's the thing. In our Ivy League schools alone, which were started out as Christian institutions. Now 80% of educators identify as progressive and almost exclusively agnostics and atheists in that camp. Not all, but most. It's 15% that would say that they are either theologically or politically conservative. Now I know in both camps there's people who are Christians and people who are not. But that's a pretty big number that we have to kind of contend with and go, well, that must mean something. And I'm sure, like I said, in both camps we're going to find Christians, but it's impossible not to notice that kind of disparity in thinking and in thought. So with all that being said, how do we win the war on education? Number one, parents must take responsibility for their children's education. Now I said this a moment ago, this message is not a war on education and it's certainly not a war on teachers. We have some great godly teachers here in our church, some of which teach in this school and we need more of those. But I, I wanna submit to you that there's at least three teachers in every classroom. There's the instructor who's paid to teach There's the curriculum that's teaching, and there's also the other students in the classroom, which for better or for worse, are part of what is teaching the others who are in there. So I want you to hear me say this clearly. We highly, highly esteem Christian teachers. We need more of you in our schools. We absolutely need people who build their lives on the word of God in our public school system teaching our children. And at the same time, we have to acknowledge that that's maybe, best case, one-third of the equation in what ends up happening. And so no matter how great the teacher is, how many know? And the teachers will tell you, they can't do it all. 
They can't take every child home. They can't put every child to bed. They can't wake every child up. They can't educate the child in every single aspect of life. They can do what they're called to do in that space. And God, I pray that you send more Christian educators into our public schools and bless the ones who are already there. But we have to take full responsibility for our children's education, no matter who we partner with in providing that. So I'm not, this isn't an anti-public school message. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that wherever you send your child to be educated, you still have to participate in that process. In fact, I think sometimes Christian private schools can actually be even worse for what happens in the family. And here's why I say this, because you think that you've vetted the school and they're going to take care of all these responsibilities. So now I can just drop my kid off and they're going to do it all. They're going to teach them the Bible. They're going to teach them arithmetic. They're going to teach them all the things they need to know. And I just need to feed them, clothe them, and have some fun with them. It can kind of be dangerous if that's how you go into it. So what I want you to hear me say is, you pick whatever kind of school you want. We have kids in public schools. We have one of our children that we're switching next week to homeschooling for different reasons. But no matter what you choose and how you decide to go forward with your children's education, the truth is you have to own that education no matter who you partner with. All right, let's look at this. Proverbs 4, 20, 23. I've given you a lot to kind of set it up. Now we're going to dig into some Bible here. How many of you like the Bible? Come on. Let's get into some Bible. Proverbs 4, 20 through 23 says this. My son, pay attention to my words. Listen closely to my sayings. How many know that's education? That's taking responsibility for educating. Here's what he says. Don't lose sight of them. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and health to one's whole body. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. This is the kind of education that God is calling his people to instruct their children in. Pay attention to the words of Scripture, for in them there is life. Now this concept of educating the next generation being so important actually comes out in a little bit of maybe a strange place where you might not expect it. As Moses is giving instruction, he's really giving a leadership speech before the Passover, and he knows that all that God is about to come and he is going to wipe out Egypt. He is going to wipe out the firstborn. He is going to release these plagues, and God's people will be set free. But before that happens, he's coming, and he's giving this speech. You can find it all in Exodus 12 and 13. It's an incredible speech. But Moses says some stuff that you might not expect in a hold on, trust God, we're going to be victorious kind of speech. That's probably what I would have said if I was Moses. But here's what he says. A few interesting things. Let's look at this. Then there's more. I'm just going to give you a few of the verses. But Exodus 12, 25 through 27 says this. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised. Look at this. He is saying when, not if, when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised. You are to observe this ceremony that he's been talking about. And watch this. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You're to reply. You're to reply. Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. Exodus 13, he says this, in the future, when your sons ask you, because they will, how me know, kids have questions. When your sons ask you, what does this mean? 
Here's what you say. By the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. Of all the things that Moses could be saying, he's making this impossible to miss point. That part of securing the future for the people of God starts with taking responsibility for teaching the children coming behind us who God is, what God's done, and how it's going to happen. And this principle we see most clearly in Proverbs 22.6. Many of you have heard it, quoted it, probably pray it for your own children. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Again, I want to submit to you, it's our job to train up our children. We can partner with educational systems, be they public, private, curriculum suppliers for home, whatever. And all of us have a part to play in it, whether you have a kid in your home or not. It takes a village. It takes a community. This is all true. But we have a job to train up our children. And our hearts, our hearts, they need continual touches and pushes towards godly beliefs. Because every time we walk out the door, we're getting continual touches and pushes towards ungodly beliefs. And this is why Deuteronomy 4, 6 the Shema, listen, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Goes on to say, so love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strengths, with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in, or some versions say, upon your heart. So what does it mean for something to be in your heart or upon your heart? I think it means that when you're supposed to have something upon your heart, it means that's the thing that you should have constant, continual, conscious, conscientious reflection upon. The words of the Lord should not be something that you just hear when you come here on Sunday. The words of the Lord should be something that we continually feed on, put on our hearts, and lay on the hearts of our children. People were to think and to meditate on them so that the word of the Lord becomes almost an automatic response to whatever situation you find yourself in. David says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's a taking on of the word in our hearts that prepares us for the culture war that we are in. It's impossible, it's impossible to push back, fight back, navigate whatever word you feel comfortable using with the world around you, without the word of God as the anchor in your heart that you meditate on day and night. His word, in a sense, has to become who you are. Number two, parents must impress God's character and his ways on their hearts. Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9 says this. Repeat them to your children. How many know your children sometimes need repeating? I need repeating. Peter and Paul both say it's good to stir you up by way of reminder. We all need to have truths repeated to us over and over and over again. So repeat this to them. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up and bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. Listen, I love the signs that say faith, hope, and love. I hope they're not just decorations though, but they're talking points for you to impress upon the people that God's given you stewardship over the benefits and the reality of faith, hope, and love are how we build ourselves 
up. Those aren't just good words that come from some shabby, chic, you know, distributor. (laughs) They come from the word of God. If you hang them on your house, put them in your heart. Put them in your children's heart. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down at night, and when you get up in the morning. Tie them as symbols on your hands, right? All of these things. Put the word of God in you, around you, everywhere in your orbit. And then you orbit around that. That's the call. Number three. I'll go quickly through these last few. Parents must live out an authentic faith. How we respond, how we do, you know, our own personal devotion, our attendance at church, our involvement in church, getting involved in the community and being the hands and feet of Jesus. All these things are important and our children are watching. My children are watching. Listen, I don't have this perfect. Some of you know my kids, so you hear about my imperfections because kids say the darndest things. Sometimes they're true. (laughs) But we have to guard our children and we have to train them. But we have to also do so with authenticity. With authenticity. Look at this, Psalm 78, 72. He shepherded them with a pure heart and he guided them with skillful hands. We must approach our children with pure hearts and skillful hands. Listen, as you do this, here's authenticity is integrity. You want to have integrity? Be authentic. You have no integrity without authenticity. Those two things must go together. Listen, we can't have this fake it on Sunday Christianity. That may work for you coming here and having people see you and meet you and think, oh, isn't this a really nice person? But if you're not instructing your children in the ways of the Lord and living according to those ways Monday through Saturday yourself, this, this Sunday is it's just something to come to. And we say around here the church is more than a place you go to but a family you belong to. How many know you take your family home with you when you leave? So I want to encourage you, get in each other's lives. Get in a small group. Take somebody to coffee. Everybody's got to eat lunch when you're done. If you don't have plans, start asking after church if somebody else does. And get to know somebody and get them in your life because that's how we can walk with authenticity is by having other people around us to help us do it. I can't do this on my own. My wife can't do this on her own. Andrew is big and strong and hard-headed as he is. He can't do it on his own. None of us can do it on our own. We all need somebody else. And so part of being an authentic believer is saying, I'm going to link arms and lock shields with somebody else, and we're going to go take on hell together, not alone. But you got to be ready to let your kids see you fall and get back up. Because part of authenticity means you're not going to do it perfectly. You're not. Proverbs 24, 16. Though a righteous person falls seven times, he will say will. He will get back up, but the wicked will stumble into ruin. The issue is never about whether or not you trip and fall down. The issue is always what happens next. Pastor Stephen loves to say this when someone messes up. Hey, the most important thing you can do is own that and do the next right thing. And I love that. It's always about next, next, next. Okay, you fell, get back up. Next, you screwed that one up. Next, you blew up at your kid. Own it, apologize, move on. Next, do better next time. We can't sit in this place of self-defeat and ruin every time we mess up and think, well, I guess I've just blown it one too many times. I'll never be the kind of parent that I'm supposed to be. My kid's going to turn out awful because I'm just a bad parent. That's a bunch of bull. Get yourself back into the word, into a Christian community. Step up and tell your kids, I did this wrong, but here's what God's word says is right, so I'm going to do it this way now, and I want you to do it with me. That's the model. I'm sorry. I'm getting a little yelly. I'm sorry. I'm, my wife's eyes are getting real big, like, whoa. 
<laughs> That's a good sign. She's not used to it. I don't yell at her at home. I only do that at church. Okay. <laughs> Let your kids see you fall and get back up. You know why that's so important? Not only for the integrity and authenticity of your ability to teach them something, but guess what? They're going to mess up too. Not just in your house, but when they're on their own. And if they haven't seen you fall and get back up, they're going to have to ask somebody else what to do. And who knows what that person's going to say. So teach them how to fail. I had to fail forward and get back up and keep following Jesus no matter what. All right, number four, I'm, I'm about to be over time. Parents must take responsibility for what their kids consume. Proverbs twenty two fifteen, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the youth. The rod of discipline will separate it from him. The rod here is a physical discipline, but the implication is about a shepherd's rod, which is to navigate, to help navigate your children, and don't go over there, that's a cliff, move back over here. Don't go over there, that water is rushing way too fast. You think you're gonna get a drink, but you're gonna get overcome and you're going to drown. So stay away from that. Your food source is over here. That stuff will kill you. This will make you stronger. That's how the rod is designed to be used. And by the way, I'm gonna give you a little free parenting tip. Uh, I'm not gonna get into spanking and whether you should or shouldn't. What I am gonna tell you is we discovered something awesome called yucky juice. Anybody know what yucky juice is? Yeah, we've been telling a few people. Apple cider vinegar. Come on, somebody. Who actually likes the taste of that? If you do, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> we discovered that if we, if we needed to discipline our kids, they would beg to be spanked if we told them they were getting yucky juice. Please just spank me and get it. I don't want that in my mouth. But, hey, it's good for them. It's good for the body. You know, the discipline's good for the soul. Okay. You have to discipline your kids, but you also have to take responsibility for what they consume, where they go, what's influencing them. Remember, you are responsible for their education, and they are being educated 24-7. Finally, as I close, number five. Let me tell you, I don't say this to you because I'm a pastor leading a church. For 10 years, I was not in ministry vocationally. I was talking with someone about this last week. Number five, parents must keep their family planted in the local church. The whole time that I was not in ministry and being paid to do a job at a church, my mindset was, and my wife's, you know, I think there's 52 Sundays in a year. Is that right? Somebody good with math? I think I'm going to make sure I'm there for at least 48 of them. And I'm going to serve probably 46 of them. And I don't tell you that because I'm telling you what you have to do, but I'm telling you this doesn't come from Nathan's the pastor, so he's at church every week and doing stuff. That's a, that's a load of garbage. Me and my family decided we're going to plant ourselves in the house of the Lord. We're going to anchor ourselves to God's people. We're not just going to be consumers. We're going to be people who are participants and get involved. We're going to support not the church, but the people of the church and the ministry of the church and see the opportunity to invest in the lives of other people and thereby be invested in also. And so we did what Beth and Dan and so many others are doing showing up at 6.30, and I hope everything's okay over there. Um, and, and Andrew and Raya, I could go on and on. There's so many people in the back, Eric and, and Asher and Jason and so many more that show up every week. They don't show up at 6.30 to turn this school into a church because it's so fun to do, although it has become that, has become that. They did it because they want to anchor their families in the house of God and be a part of something that matters and will matter for eternity. So I'm gonna encourage you, Psalm 92 12 through 15 says this. I promise I'm about to close. I know you're getting hungry. It's not even noon yet. Hold on. Psalm 92, 12 through 15. The righteous thrive like a palm tree 
and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. How many want that? That's it. How many want to bear fruit in your old age? That's what I thought. Okay, y'all getting, y'all getting sleepy. It's okay, we're almost done. They will still bear fruit in their old age, healthy and green, to declare, the Lord is just. He is my rock, and there is no righteousness in him. This is what God has for us. I said earlier, but the best thing we can do comes from Proverbs, Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But he will be righteous and will thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. He will be planted in the house of the Lord and there thrive in the courts of our God. And he will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green. This is the promise that God has for all of us as we plant ourselves in his house, as we plant ourselves in his word, as we establish our lives according to the will, the ways, and the word of God. Bow your heads with me as we close. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, God, for the institutions of education, and thank you for every place where it happens. But Lord, we pray, even as we stand here in a public middle school, understanding full well that the enemy is at work here, we ask, God, that you would be at work here. Lord, the teachers who teach in this school, Lord, who who serve you, who love you, who've given their lives to you, and are also giving their lives to children, Lord, would you give them imagination and insight and spiritual discernment and power and supernatural gifts to be able to minister to children who come through these doors in ways that they may not experience anywhere else. Lord, for the private schools, for the Christian schools, for the classical schools, for the charter schools, for the home schools, all of them. Lord, would you give us wisdom and insight and understanding on how to train up our children in the ways they should go so that in the end, they will not depart, but will reap the blessings that come from being planted in the house of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You can stay connected with us at Vintage.Church or on Facebook by searching Vintage Church TX. At Vintage, we believe church is more than a place or a weekend activity. It's a spiritual family where Jesus is the center of our lives personally and our relationships collectively. If you're in the Liberty Hill area, we would love to have you join us this week. You can learn more about us, our service time, and plan your visit by visiting vintage.church slash Liberty Hill. We hope to see you soon.